Morning, glory and evening, grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. Have a wonderful Labor Day. And I have put together for you the Labor Day special to end all Labor Day specials. This is the 15th year of my broadcast, and I've never known what to do with Labor Day. I've always known what I wanted to do with it, but I never had the experts and the assets to make it come to pass. And now I finally do, thanks to my friends at Hillsdale College. This is sort of an extended Hillsdale dialogue in three hours, and you don't want to miss any of it. Uh, It's an ambitious project, and uh, to do so, I have enlisted, of course, Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and uh, his colleague, Dr. Thomas West, who is uh, one of the extraordinary authorities on Marxism and Leninism, and also Dr. Paul Marino, who knows the American labor movement. And here's the plan, so you know from the very beginning. In the first hour, we're going to talk about Karl Marx. In the second hour, we're going to talk about Vladimir Lenin and Joseph Stalin and what they did to Marx. And in the third hour, we're going to talk about the American labor movement, not implying that it is an extension of the first two hours, but talking about how it is both unique from those first two hours, but also always at peril from them. Uh, and, and I'm going to begin with the overview by asking um, uh, Dr. Arne, who has studied labor forever through the lens of the British system and the life of Winston Churchill, whether or not you recall that when you sent me to the British Library years ago, you told me to get a, a, a reading room card so that I could sit where Mark sat. Yeah. I once, uh, I, I used to go do that all the time. And one time I was in there and I'd gone up to the typing room in the way back and I was working and I didn't get the message to clear out. And I walked out and I noticed everybody was gone. I was like five minutes late. And uh, down there, there was a bunch of guys and it looked like a scene from The Godfather. Guys in overcoats and fedoras. And then one of them turned, turned around and took his head off and darned if it wasn't Mikhail Gorbachev. And so I looked appropriately down on him, and he had come to see the place where Marx wrote Capital. Interesting. I, did, I didn't hear that before. And that is, there's a lot to talk about, Marx, but Dr. West, what do you make of my project today in the order in which I've laid it out? It makes, makes sense to me. It seems to me that uh, you, you, got, you have Marx, the philosopher of communism, and he lays out the, the big picture of where it needs to go and why. And then you've got the practitioners, Lenin and Stalin, who tried to implement it and to, did, their, did their best, I would say. And then, of course, the, the American Labor Union, as you rightly say, labor movement is uh, influenced by Marx, but fundamentally distinct from it. I think that's right. And so on Labor Day, we're going to talk about the man who wrote the most about labor and capital and his fundamentally disfigured American thinking and international thinking about it. I begin by noting that all of the Hillsdale Dialogues are available at HughForHillsdale.com. All of the online courses that Hillsdale offers are available at Hillsdale.edu, including uh, the opportunity to sign up for Imprimus, the, uh, the we- monthly speech digest of uh, Hillsdale, which is absolutely available to you for free, and you ought to go and do that. And I also want to begin by by saying just a word about Dr. West, who is no slouch when it comes to Marxism and Leninism. And in fact, I I have to ask you, Dr. West, you've devoted a lot of your life to this. And and people should know that Dr. West is a professor of politics at Hillsdale College. He started there in 2011 after a long and distinguished career at the University of Dallas. He's also a director and senior fellow at the Claremont Institute and has written extraordinarily broadly in the field of political theory but you threw yourself into Marx, and I got to ask at the beginning of that, why? 
Well, of course, when I first get, got into that, that was the, at the height of the Cold War, uh, somewhere in the late 70s. And uh, the Soviets were, at that time, uh, country, were taking over country after country around the world. Got to the point where I actually was tempted to cancel my subscription to the newspaper so I could just close my eyes to the whole world. It was that, it was that uh, bleak. You feeling that way again lately? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't quite gotten to that at that point, but, but that was during the Carter years especially when I first got into that. And I, yeah, I wanted to know. I'd, I'd done a lot of work on Greek philosophy and done a lot of work on uh, the Germans, Hegel, uh, Kant, and it's the people leading up to Marx. Hadn't done much Marx, and I got into it. I had a teacher at, D at D Dallas, Leo D. Alvarez, who had himself been a, a, a big student of that topic. Uh, over the years, and, and he and I uh, worked on this together, and I was, a big, I was a student of his on that topic and very much uh, appreciate his, his guidance. And Dr. Arn, I'll turn to you to embarrass our, our guest, Dr. West, today. Uh, maybe some people out there don't know his contribution to modern American conservatism, but they are substantial and enduring. Yeah, well, Tom is, uh, he, he, he and I are intellectual siblings, that is to say we studied with the same people. Tom has got a theoretical mind, and he couples that with uh, a blunt clarity that makes him a joy to read and a misery to argue with. <laughs> and uh, so he's like that. And he's, uh, you know, he... That's he, sort of the opposite of me. <laughs> yeah, there you go. That's right. There you go. He's, uh, he, uh, and when he writes on something, he tries to get to the nub of it. And so it's always good to read him on something he's written about, and it's quite a few things, as you rightly point out. You know, he and his wife are translators of leading leading translators of four platonic dialogues at least four and uh and so yeah and he that means if you want to know about a thing the way he writes about the thing is he tries to take it apart and make its argument the way it's made and uh that's what offends people and that's what informs people now in the second segment in the second hour today we will dive into Dr. West's uh, authoritative treatment of how Lenin and Marx are related. But I want to keep focused on just Marx in the first hour. And to begin that, Dr. West, we are in the midst of a little Marxist boomlet around the person of Thomas Piketty, uh, the, the, the best-selling and most unread book of the year. Why are we doing this again? Isn't Marxism as discredited as, as uh, uh, Ptolemy? Yeah, if only. Uh, no, the, the, I think the, the temptation that Marx himself experienced, and that's how he became a Marxist, but also for us as late as now, is that uh, in the modern world, modern Western world, uh, starting somewhere, and I mean modern in the sense of somewhere in the 1700s, uh, it became widely believed among educated people that Christianity could no longer be believed in. And it became, uh, it became also widely believed that the traditional uh, natural law ideas associated with uh, classical philosophy or John Locke couldn't be believed in either. And so the question became, where do we go from there? How do we somehow capture a meaning for human life in the absence of God and in the absence of natural law? And Marx gave an answer. He said, I, I can tell you that all of history is leading towards this wonderful state in which all human problems are going to be solved. You are going to love it. And uh, intellectuals just, they always, they, there's this strain of messianism without God that is deeply ingrained 
in our intellectual culture, uh, not just today, but over the past two centuries. Why don't we develop an immunity to it, though? Because Thomas Piketty is arriving in 2014 on bookshelves everywhere, but we've been inoculated. We've received a series of inoculations, whether we call them the Soviet Union or Cuba or North Korea, whatever. We ought to know better than this. We should know better. Uh, but, uh, you know, think about the way people today typically defend capitalism. They'll say something like, it's more efficient. People get more money. Uh, it's, it, it's something that ha- it's, uh productive of conveniences. In other words, people will make material arguments on behalf of capitalism. But what the Marxists do and and what uh, Marx-related thinking does is to say, that's all low and and disgusting and materialistic. And we have a grander vision. We think that humanity has a higher destiny than simply material indulgence. And we've we've got this grand thing in which all human beings can become Siblings, brothers and sisters together, we don't need to have uh, politics. We don't need to have selfishness. The big thing is selfishness. The thing about capitalism, it's, it, it involves a certain legitimacy of people pursuing their own interests. And the Marxists are saying, we can get beyond that. And until, until defenders of capitalism can come up with an argument that's based on an idea of justice, an ideal, they're, they're going to keep losing this argument to the left. But, but Larry, Arn, a minute to the break. We have done that repeatedly. We've made those arguments, but they don't seem to endure. Well, uh, that's because the problem is very deep, and that means that our arguments need to be deeper than they typically are. I mean, you know, why do I like to work in the college? Well, first of all, what a great thing. But then the other reason is what Tom just said was fundamental understanding of the nature of man and God and beast and the nature of everything was altered, and we are watching that play out. And it's going to play out until we go back to the beginning and think all that stuff through again and see the madness that comes from the road we're traveling on. We will be right back, an extended Labor Day edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue covering Marx, Lenin, Stalin, the American labor movement, everything you need to know on Labor Day with Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Thomas West, Go Nowhere America, Dr. Paul Marino will join us later. It is The Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour on this Labor Day, it's appropriate to play the International, or maybe it's not. It's Hugh Hewitt on a special Labor Day edition of the Hugh Hewitt Show. Brand new, three-part, three-hour Hillsdale Dialogue with my friends from Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, as they regather at the campus in Michigan for another extraordinary year of excellence in thinking. They're helping us launch our school year by doing a Labor Day edition devoted to the works of Marx, of Lenin and Stalin, and the different very different path of American labor history. Joining us in that endeavor, Dr. Larry Arn will be here for three hours. First two hours, Dr. Thomas West, his colleague at Hillsdale, will be here. Dr. Paul Marino will join us, the historian of the American labor movement, in hour number three. Don't miss any of this, and they're all of them. Every Hillsdale dialogue we've done for the past two years, available at uh, Hugh for Hillsdale.com, and all of Hillsdale courses are available at Hillsdale.edu. Uh, briefly, for the benefit of our audience who are just walking in, Marx lived, uh, Karl Marx, from 1818 to 1883. He was born a German, but he moved to London uh, about the age of 30 or 31 in 1849, spent the rest of his life there. 
His big two works are The Communist Manifesto and Capital, uh, which Dr. Arne referred to having been written in the British Library, the reading room of the British Library, this beautiful room that Larry Arne coaxed me into 20 years ago, and I couldn't, I couldn't believe that so much damage had been done in such a beautiful setting. But, but let's start, Dr. Thomas West. What ought people to know about dialectical materialism and the core of what Marx believed? Because I think he got to it fairly young in his intellectual life, didn't he? He did. He was, uh, he, he was making the basic arguments uh, as, as, uh, in, in the 1840s. Uh, that he then uh, built on through the rest of his life. Uh, uh, so, um, di- died in the 1880s. So, yeah. Um, but the the basic claim he's make Marx is making about reality is that the 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 real the fundamental thing that happens in life is production production of goods and services for human life. He's basic, and he he made that claim because he's a materialist. And so what that means is that the whole realm of ideas, ideas about right and wrong, that he's saying is a byproduct, uh, epiphenomenon on top of this, the basis, the, the economic. And then he says, and then, so once you start with that, and then you'll understand that human history is nothing more than a movement between different ways of producing things, each of which leads to a different kind of class structure based, you know, who's owning and who's not owning the goods. And that, in turn, uh, has, has, been gen- has generated this transformation of the human condition, especially through capitalism. Marx saw capitalism as being both a good and a bad thing. Good because it invented these, these technological miracles that enable the, uh, great uh, wealth, but bad because it's simply another form of selfishness institutionalized. So his point was that once you get to the end of this cycle of this his- history, there's going to be this vast explosion in which the class structure, the class struggle, will be destroyed and will be replaced by complete equality in which we will all agree basically to work and to produce and will no longer have to have politics in the older sense of oppression. So Dr. Arndt, I'm not sure he was aware of, you'll have to tell me if he ever read the Federalist Papers, but uh, he, he is basically arguing with medicine that men can be angels, right? Yeah, he it it takes a well. First of all, he, he his argument is really that they're on their way there. That uh, you can't understand. You know, uh, Marx was extremely hostile to what we mean by angels if we mean something divine or semi-divine. But what he thinks is we're on this process, right? It's running, and the only thing that's changed in history is that now we know that. Now our understanding of the historical process opens up an opportunity. We can seize the moment. We can take charge. We can run the thing. And and so angels have to go, by the way. It's not just property. I mean, here's a, here's a thing to understand. The first thing I can find that Winston Churchill ever wrote about Marx is in a novel where there's a villain, and uh, there are two villains, actually, and... They have a conversation, this revolutionary hero who's really just Winston Churchill put to fiction, uh, is all well enough. He's a Democrat and he wants freedom. But what does he know of the community of property, community of goods, I think the guy said. And then the other one replies, or the community of wives. Uh, uh, This man says, I'd like the president's wife. Because you have to be a beautiful woman. 
And so you see what the point is. Churchill understands, and he wrote this when he's 24 years old, he sees the hostility of Marx to the family. Huh. Because the family, you know, in, in Marx, the family, the, the women and children in a family are the wage slaves of the wage slaves, which is what the men are. And they have to have their liberation. You have to bust that up. And the reason you have to bust that up is it makes everything unequal. Because, you know, uh, I, I love to say, it's one of my favorite things to say, uh, I got lucky in my birth. I could have been more born to some rich wastrel. Instead, I was born to a school teacher, and he liked to read books. So that went on in our house. And, uh, and so, you know, not everybody is born that way. Right. And I didn't earn that. And so you have to level that. You have to break that up. And, and that seems to me, but Tom, Tom knows more about this than I do, but it, it seems to me that that operates just like property in Marx. It's another thing that has to be revolutionized, and religion is a third. Now I've got to ask Tom West. Uh, I'm familiar with the life of Marx through the work of Paul Johnson in his book Intellectuals, and he's a thoroughly repugnant, distasteful human being. And I know that you and, and Paul Johnson depart in your understanding of what happens after Marx, but uh, I assume you agree with his depiction of him. How could someone get purchase so widely as Marx did with such a revolutionary idea and set of, of outcomes fr- and, and from such a distasteful person? Well, I don't think that people were thinking, pe- people who read Marx didn't really know about him personally. What they knew about was his ideas. And this was... The context in which Marx was, Marx was writing was this period of immense optimism and immense confidence in the power of modern science and modern wor- the modern world to sweep everything away that was old and fossilized and, and ancient and put in its place some kind of a grand vision. This is the same period uh, that, uh, that that novel uh, Frankenstein was, was published. You know, the idea of recreating humanity and at the same time, there was also, on the pessimistic side, there were people who had doubts about it all. But the, but the predominant strain of that period, the 1840s and 50s, was we can, we can solve all human problems. And this came, you know, this, there's a background for that, it's especially you can find in the writings of Hegel. Because he's talking about how all of human history is leading towards an increasing human freedom. And what Marx did was to take that basic idea, which was widely accepted in Europe, and to radicalize it, and to do exactly what Larry said. He said, That's, we've got to take Hegel's idea and apply it to the family, to private property, to religion. We're going to get rid of religion, we're going to abolish the family, and we're going to deny any right to own anything of one's own. I will be right back with Dr. Thomas West, who just heard Dr. Larry Arn, both of Hillsdale Colleges. This special Labor Day edition of the Hillsdale Dialogue continues Marx this hour, Lennon and Stalin the next, and then we look at the American labor movement. In hour number three on this Labor Day, don't go anywhere. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America. I hope you have a wonderful Labor Day. In conclusion to summer, it's back to school weekend. It's back to the Hillsdale Dialogue Week as well. Special three-parter today with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. And you can read all about the college at hillsdale.edu. It's a good time to get your application begun because our application pool grows and grows and grows with each year of the uh, college's fame and its influence and its profound impact on its students. And hillsdale.edu is also the place you can sign up for Imprimus, the uh, speech digest that comes out absolutely free monthly. All of their free online courses are there. Dr. Thomas West is with me as well. He is a professor of politics at Hillsdale College. 
Uh, after a long, distinguished career at the University of Dallas, he got tricked into moving to Michigan. I don't know how that happened. Uh, and as a director and a senior fellow of the Claremont Institute, uh, Dr. West, um, the Communist Manifesto, 1848, Capital, 1867. These are the two big contributions that people know Marx for and for the term dialectical materialism. Can we start with the manifesto? And uh, my gosh, when I first read it, it was turgid and it hadn't gotten any better in the 40 years since. What made that work? What made it work? What do you mean? Why do people like it? Yeah, it just is so turgid. It's it's just completely unreadable. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, you're right, but, you know, he's... Do you recall that Tom said that this guy takes off on Hegel? Yeah, well, well, I got to you know, I, I just made Thank my you, uh, I just made my law students read David McCullough's book, seventeen seventy six, as a way to start a First Amendment seminar. And Thomas Paine's The Crisis, and basically everything that's written by everyone for seven years is wonderfully inspiring, and it gets you to marching, and you you re up for six months after you've been retreating from New York for six weeks, and you it's because it's the, the rhetoric is great. But the Communist Manifesto is awful. So I don't. So Hugh, I don't understand why you're not caught up in its in its grand vision. I mean, he's telling you, we're going to abolish all suffering. We're going to get rid of all party struggle. We're going to get rid of the evils of the family and women, where women are trapped, where children are made to work for their parents without pay, and we're going to get rid of religion. It's the John Lennon vision. What, where, what you need to get on board, Hugh? Uh, well, I'm just thinking when you imagine. start. <laughs> imagine. Well, the music and all that, the culture that flowed from it is a very attractive culture, but the bourgeoisie and the proletariat these are not these are not terms. We know what they mean now, but no one else knew what they meant then. How did he persuade people? I mean, did people sit around reading this and say? There, that he's, it's so dense that it must be deep. But he's, look, he's, what he says about the bourgeois, meaning the people who are the capitalists, people who own property in our time, he says that they, the bourgeois, on the one hand, they're just, they're, they're exploiting their workers down to the point where they're going to be on the verge of starvation. And on the other hand, he's saying, they've done all this great service for humanity. It's actually kind of an interesting, engaging argument. He's saying the bourgeoisie have destroyed the, the noble illusions which formerly accompanied every political and social order. We've gotten rid of the idea that some men are destined by God to rule and others have to submit. It, it's, uh, the, the bourgeoisie has conquered nature, has made it possible to live in Texas with air conditioning. Huh. That, that's what he's talking about. Is we've and, now... and by the way, that's prescient. <laughs> 
was the tinder that dry? Well, the so the Winston Churchill entered Parliament in 1900, and so did the Fabian, the the Labour Party, founded by mostly by people in the Fabian Society. So socialism became a political force in the same year Churchill did. And here's their account. They think that uh, we're extending the franchise, so everybody's going to vote in Britain, and that happened in Britain long after it happened in the United States. Okay, hold on that thought till okay. we come back. They had the, uh, Churchill and the, and the socialists arrive at the same time, which is roughly 50 years after the, the manifesto publishes. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. His colleague and professor of politics there, Thomas West. Don't go anywhere. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue Labor Day special. Stay tuned. 44 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on an expense. A special Labor Day Hillsdale Dialogue extended discussion about where much of our modern language comes about when we talk about labor. Uh, it begins with Marx and it goes on through Lenin and, and Stalin. And it ends up in the American labor movement completely transformed in a completely different way. And we'll cover that in hour three. But hour one to Marx and to next hour to Lenin and Stalin. Joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Thomas West, a professor of politics at Hillsdale. All of the Hillsdale dialogues are available at HughForHillsdale.com, and there's a button for them over at HughHewitt.com. When we went to break, Dr. Arn, you were saying, Marx, 50 years after Marx wrote the Communist Manifesto with Engels, there arrived in Parliament at the same time as young Winston Churchill, the Fabian Socialist. So you, was the tender dry, was your question? Yes. Was some, how the world prepared, and their view was that it was prepared in, in economics and in politics by capitalism and by democratic politics, and that it would lead inevitably to socialism, which, by the way, for quite a long time in Britain, it did. Uh, they were right about that. Churchill lost those battles and won them a, a bit toward the end. But the second and deeper way it was prepared was this. What Tom said is very important to understand. People were looking for a project. They didn't have the project of serving God, and they didn't have the project of living as good people as nature intended. All that was imperfect and superseded. And now we're called to go way beyond that. We can make everything right. And, I mean, you know, listen to Obama's speeches when they get to their most radical, and that's what he's talking about, right? We can make everything right. There isn't any reason why anybody should have differences from anybody else that they regard as as uh, odorous, uh, onerous. So the truth is, Marx was exciting and riveting because Marx had a major political plan, and it was easy to see how you could attach that to a division in politics that Aristotle, as far back as that, regards as fundamental, and that is the difference between the few rich and the many poor. That can become a project to overcome that, and it can gain political support in the way those politics have always gained political support. Now, Dr. West, I, I have in front of me Marx and Lenin, your, your famous essay on this subject, and uh, the preface to one publication of it, I believe, by Dr. Arn, says that Marx's view from the very beginning anticipated with relish the violent extremes of communism in practice. Uh, and, and and when people pick up Das Kapital, I don't think they pick it up with the same foreboding that they pick up Mein Kampf, but I think they're the same book with different turgid language because both of their authors intended to remake everything, which always means breaking all the China, and that China means a lot of blood, right? Well, the difference, the thing is this, that the, the two books you mentioned that Marx is famous for, Capital and the Manifesto, 
they don't they avoid that really nasty violent language that Marx was very enamored of in fact in in some of his lesser known writings and particularly in his in, in some of his youthful writings of the early 1840s he talks there uh, one of his main themes there is we need to get beyond the, away from the idea that philosophy is all about trying to understand the world he says no the point is to change it not to understand it and he says and we need to get away from the idea that the point of philosophy is is criticism he says from now on we're going to criticize with weapons, meaning we're going to stop talking and we're going to start smashing people. Uh, he, Marx and, and uh, Engels used to exchange letters in which they would talk uh, gleefully about we need to bring back 1793, meaning the French terror in which people were executed without trial, in which there were uh, thousands of people, innocent people murdered uh, on behalf of the revolution. Marx had a streak, had a violent, a nasty violent streak that uh, not as well known actually to uh, readers today because they're not, it doesn't appear, it appears in these various uh, occasional writings that actually turned out to be in retrospect quite fundamental for Marx's thinking. So when, when, when he writes Capital, is he intentionally disguising that or is that just um, uh, a lesser but That's just priority. not the theme at that point. I mean, Capital is meant to be an analysis of why it is that once you create this capitalist system, it will inevitably just self-destruct and lead into by a, by a process of automatic by an automatic process lead into this revolution this automatic process is dialectical materialism can you explain people in, in, in the three minutes left in this segment just a summary of what he means by it well that, that what that means is that uh, the capitalists are going to constantly uh, invest too much money in projects that will not create enough wealth for them to keep going and they will then uh, that will then create these huge depressions, economic crises, and so on. He was, you know, he, that that was the idea that it would self-destruct. There would also be by its impoverishment of the working class, nobody would be around to buy their goods. Yeah. So uh, let me add to that. It's dialectical. That means like a dialogue. There's two things interacting with each other, and they cause conflict and make the action, and in fact produce a third thing. And the second thing is it's material. That is to say. The way people get their living, the way they produce what they need to exist, is the driving force. We are essentially creatures of our material needs. And, and, and to all those who deny that right now in their cars or to those who denied it in the, in the 1840s or 1870s or right up through the arrival of the socialists, to what does he reply? That you're delusional? Well... You mean, uh, well, is the, the answer to that that you have to account? Yeah, certainly it's true that people are acquisitive and they have these needs and they spend a lot of their time meeting them. Certainly it's true that they, they uh, are formed in important ways by the work they do. But then you've got to account for motherhood and faith and duty and honor and love and beauty, right? In other words, those things in the classical account, in the founders of America's account, those are things that beckon to the human being irresistibly and call him up to something better. And that means that the truth of the matter is we're a mixed being, right? We're not angels and we're not beasts. We're in the middle. And so we have both things in us. And, and Marx's philosophy is powerful because of its focus and reduction of the phenomenon to one aspect of it. A minute to the break, Dr. West. Did he ever doubt himself? Did his friendship with Engels, for example, suggest to him that friendship is possible? And, well, 
I'll ask that after the break. I hear the music. I'm right, I'll be right back with Dr. West, Dr. Arn on this, the first hour of a special Labor Day Hillsdale Dialogue. Stay tuned. 55 minutes after the Hour Americans, Hugh Hewitt wrapping up hour number one of a special three-day Labor Day special of Hillsdale Dialogues with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College. The first two hours with Dr. Thomas West, professor of politics at, ha- at Hillsdale. We're finishing up our conversation about Marx, and we'll transition to Lenin and Stalin next hour. But, Dr. West, I was saying, did Marx ever doubt himself? Did the the good things in his life, his friendship with Engels, I mean, Engels kept him from starving, to to his marriage, to anything. Did he ever doubt that that we were other than material beings? He never he he never doubted it, uh, and you know he was completely devoted to this uh, materialist explanation of history that we've just been talking about. But you got to think about where Marx's initial insight came from, and it came, as I mentioned earlier, it came out of Hegel, it came out of a philosopher, not out of life, not out of the material circumstances of his background. He read a book that caught his imagination about how human history is the story of increasing freedom. That was Hegel. And, and, and it was that, really, I think, in the most deep sense, that animated Marx throughout his life, in spite of his claim later that it's really all a matter of analyzing our material economic circumstances. And so in his head, really, in the way he op- actually lived in himself, uh, he cared about truth and justice. He so cared about community. But uh, he, he, didn't, he didn't allow himself to, to think that that was what was animating what his theory was. Uh, two minutes left to this, to this hour. Uh, you obviously think it's important to teach. You are still teaching Marx to the students at Hillsdale. But why is that necessary after the convulsions of the last 150 years? Well, uh, you, you mentioned Piketty. Uh, you've got uh, one, of our, one of the most celebrated postmodern writers, this guy named Zizek who everybody seems to think is a wonderful guy. People are throwing thousands of dollars at him to give talks. And he's an open Marxist. In fact, openly celebrates Stalin, Stalinism, violence. Uh, is invited to, uh, right here in Michigan, to Calvin College recently to what? give a talk. What? Oh, yeah. This is the kind of thing that goes on now. That's a highly respected figure in modern American uh, academic life. He's, from, he's European, but he's constantly over here making lots of money. Well, you know, we might have him here sometime. We'd just have somebody to argue with him. Uh, I'm just, <laughs> I'm, I am sometimes astonished by what I learn about modern American academia. I'm just too practical. Uh, when we come back into hour number two, we'll, we'll talk about the transition. But when your students, have you ever produced any Marxists out of Hillsdale? Uh, can't think of any. <laughs> Pretty hard to do if you are surrounded by the other good books, right? To stay yeah, well, a Marxist, the, the main... you have to stay alone in your Marxism. So one time I was asked, why, uh, Rush Limbaugh asked me this one time, he said, how do you make the students conservative? I said, you know, I don't. And he said, said, you can't do that, especially if they're any good. He said, are they? And I said, yeah, mostly. And he said, why? And I said, well, if you take up the reading of an old book on the view that it's valuable, you've already discarded the modern left. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Hour number two of the special Labor Day special. Don't go anywhere, America. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 